Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto over at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am great. I'm excited to learn today. Super important episode. Let's learn. We are all about learning. And in this Insight show, of course, we wanted to look at crypto scaling. People say crypto isn't fast enough. It's too slow. It's too expensive. Um, and what are the approaches? alternatives to Ethereum, other layer ones, layer twos. We're gonna take a look at the why, the what, the how. What do we need to do to scale this stuff and to bring it to market? Um, approaches we're seeing, and of course, where the future might be. So uh, to dig into this, uh, we are joined by some incredible guests. Uh, Maurizio Magaldi is a global leader of crypto here at 11FS. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Maurizio? I'm great. I love talking about scalability on blockchain, and it's a pleasure to be back in the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you back. Always a smiley face. Um, listeners, you might not know how smiley his face is, but it's extremely smiley, I assure you. And Yassin Sheik, who is the CFO at the Near Foundation, welcome to the show, Yassin. Thank you so much. Uh, how are you doing today? Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm doing fantastic. Oh, look at that. This is going to be a fun one, I can tell already. So great to have you on board. Let's jump in. So we're going to start at the very, very beginning so we can fully explore the topic. Kai, actually, I mean, you know all about the scalability question. You probably hear um, Bitcoin compared to Visa transaction per second all the time. What do you think the, as you look at scalability, what are the things that people talk about and how do you define it? Yeah, so we think it's it's so important that we start this conversation framing the importance of decentralization because if you lose like decentralization then you know there are many different you know databases and networks that can be you know very very scalable but they're dependent either on one entity or a small number of of entities. And so it's not just one variable that you're optimizing. And this is where it's this really really important framework that you know, Vitalik initially uh, proposed and now is kind of part of the canon for this entire conversation and debate in this concept of the scalability trilemma. And that's that, you know, every blockchain is really trying to, to optimize uh, for what are effectively today have been two out of three things. And that's, you know, decentralization, you know, how many people can participate in operating this network and you know, making sure there's not one or just a few you know points of failure. Then there's you know security. You know what is the cost to attack the network? You know what attacks can happen, and and that kind of ties into decentralization. And then there's scalability of what is the throughput? What are the transactions per second? You know which is the number that you often see cited. And so you know today most blockchains have really optimized for decentralization and security, you know, with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And to do that, they've sacrificed scalability. And then you have other blockchains that might optimize for scalability, but they're sacrificing decentralization and security. And so there is no one single perfect solution of the infinite scalable blockchain that's also infinitely decentralized and secure. And it's really just about trade-offs. And so I always, I, I kind of get annoyed every time I see these comparisons of, oh, well, our blockchain does higher TPS, 
you have to really evaluate on each of these metrics and understand what trade-offs you're making to get that. And, and yes, and there are so many out there now, but broadly different terminology gets used for when you're not talking about Ethereum and not talking about Bitcoin. People tend to talk about the alternative layer ones or layer twos that are built on top of either Bitcoin, in this case, Lightning, or layer twos that are built on top of Ethereum. How do you separate those in your mind and how do you define them, um, especially in the context of what the guys were saying? Well, the very put it the very simplest, it's uh, layer one is the blockchain and layer two is all the solutions wherever layer one failed in scaling. <laughs> but it's not that simple, um, probably to understand. Taking a step back, what a layer one really is. And to, uh, to get this trustless environment, let's decompose the blockchain. You have this consensus algorithm, which basically chooses who is enabled to put in the next block. And that, that, that chooses then, you have proof of stake as well as proof of work as, as options or proof of authority, etc. And then there is another element which validators, miners, etc. do. They listen to all the transactions that are happening and only one gets to input the next block, right? And so they need to process smart contracts as well, as well as store the, the output of the data. And when we talk about scalability, there is the consensus algorithm that uses a lot of uh, electricity, energy or work. And there is the, the processing of data and doing transactions. And layer ones, they are the ones that, that that's a consensus algorithm, as well as uh, doing these calculations on the smart contracts and doing the storing. Layer twos then try to scale a certain aspect of it and help, to, uh, for example, to do transactions faster, but, but uh, really not on the consensus algorithm side, but rather on the execution of smart contracts and on the storage. So by separating those two activities by separating consensus and computation, the logic and the getting to the agreement about it, potentially we get to go a, a lot, lot faster. Uh, Maurizio, I'm interested, could you give some examples of uh, some of the names people might have heard of and just kind of drop them into buckets, that, how they fit in your head at least? so that people can kind of start to separate famous names that they may have heard of? Because I'm interested in, in how you view that. So I think the like the pinnacle of the ex example that is always in people's minds is the, is the Ethereum ecosystem, where you have Ethereum layer one, which is the mother of all Ethereum virtual machines. And that is where Ether exists. And most of the big, big things that happen in the space are in Ethereum. And then there's a whole ecosystem and I would separate them in two buckets because layer twos, as we say, they roll up into layer one as Yesin was describing. So you do a bunch of transactions in layer two and then you roll into layer one where that gets settled. So I would separate the layers, the layer two into maybe two buckets. The probabilistic ones, which is where the activity happens and it rolls up into layer one. And if and when there is a dispute, then it gets checked. So that's called optimistic because, you know, it has a chance of being wrong, but we assume this is right. And then there's the zero knowledge 
bucket of layer twos, whereas I know that this is a fact that this transaction happened, I'm going to bucket them up and then do like a many to one from layer two to layer one by recording finality in layer one after all those transactions happened for sure in the layer two, that's the ZK, the zero knowledge rollup. So I think this would separate. So from the ZK side of things, I think Polygon is the hallmark example using using the power of uh, the layer two to scale Ethereum. That's probably the layer two blockchain where we saw most activity recently. Even if you think about NFTs, the value in which the NFTs are perceived when existing in Polygon is more pricey than the other uh, layer twos. So that's Polygon is a hallmark example. And on the other bucket, I think Optimism, because of the name, it's obviously the one example uh, on the optimistic side of things. And I think as these things sort of mature, these blockchains mature, we also have the the, the overall upgrade of Ethereum layer one coming mm-hmm. forth, which can put uh, some questions on people's minds. So this is why it gets confusing, Maurizio, isn't it? Because you've got the Ethereum is going to go faster. You've got people building competitors to Ethereum that are potentially faster. Solana, Nier, um, there are many, many, many others as well, um, top, top name projects. And then you've got people building on top of Ethereum in different ways. And so if you as a listener are saying, well, hang on a minute, I can go up from Ethereum or I can go to the left, to the right. There's also, just to make it extra confusing, things that are Ethereum compatible, but have their own layer one. So uh, the way I like to think about it is if you're using your MetaMask wallet today or your Rainbow wallet or your Ethereum compatible wallet, you're probably using the Ethereum virtual machine, the EVM. And the EVM, it's almost like uh, going right back to the beginner, beginner version of CompSci. This is the level I work at. Database, software, user interface. And the database is the, the kind of the, the, the L1 in this case. It is storing the transaction history in most cases. And it's also uh, the only thing that can add new transactions to, to, the, to the bottom end of the stack. The middle layer in Ethereum's case, the EVM plus, 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 plus a bunch of stuff is the thing that allows you to move it back and forth. Uh, And then the wallet is your primary interface and your way to to access that. Kai, is that hacky enough? Does that, does that uh, work for you? Or do you think there's a, there's another, another hack we can use to try and get, get our heads around this one? I thought that was, that was a great description. I think this, this concept of EVM or Ethereum compatibility is really, really important because Ethereum has really built this network effect of developers and infrastructure where there are many applications, there are many wallets, you know, that were built for the Ethereum, you know, the layer one. Now what we're seeing is that there are alternative layer ones who are keeping EVM compatibility, like, you know, Binance, you know, Smart Chain and, you know, Avalanche, I, I believe is, as another but they're not depending upon Ethereum at all for any level of security. They're not directly connected to the Ethereum network, but you can use the same wallets that you use for the Ethereum network for those new layer ones. Then you have, like Simon mentioned, this whole ecosystem of competitive layer twos, they're all competing with each other, but they sit on top of Ethereum, and so they still depend on Ethereum for security, 
you know, they execute transactions off chain, but then effectively settle or batch them back to the Ethereum blockchain. They're also compatible so that you can use your you know, Ethereum you know, wallets with them. And then lastly, there are non-Ethereum compatible layer ones like Solana, which really require new developer ecosystems to be built with new wallets, new custodians, and it's more work you know, to add you know, these brand new blockchains you know, versus just adding something that's already Ethereum compatible. And so those are, I'd say, like the three buckets that things are fitting into. And right now, it's just this fascinating, super fragmented ecosystem of intense competition for both developers, consumers, and exchanges around, okay, if I'm a developer, which of these do I build on? You know, I might build on multiple, but which one do I start on? If I'm an exchange, which of these do I support? Well, in which order? And then as a consumer, now I'm on an exchange and I want to withdraw USDC. And it gives me six different options of networks that I want to withdraw the USDC on. And so we're kind of experiencing as a consumer these battles, uh, which I think the hope is in the future, this will be abstracted away as there's more consolidation. But right now, everyone's under the hood switching which networks they're connecting to, which makes this a very difficult experience in this early stage. It does. Yes, and uh, where does Nia fit in that mental model and does that mental model work for you? That's a fantastic question. Thank you for that. I think the blockchain industry overall fails to set the right priorities when it comes to scaling. We are overscaling on the consensus algorithm, if you think of proof of work or even the, a new proof of stake, how Ethereum does it at the moment. If, we, if you go back to that um, trilemma of scaling, so decentralization, I think we all agree, that's the solution to the traditional ways how we do things. So, But we have over maximized on decentralization, decentralize all the things. And we forgot about scalability and sometimes about security. Fortunately, the space agrees with some hard learnings that security is not a, way, a place where we can do compromises. But we did with decentralization, over decentralizing, we don't have scalability. So if you think about the gear that Bitcoin, you. Uh, uses. If you look at like the newest end miners, they do a hundred terahash. If you take the total hash rate, which Bitcoin uses, that's 2.2 million of newest end miners. That's like 35 kilogram per end miner. You can calculate it's 17.6 billion dollars of mining gear and all to do four transactions per second. That's ridiculous. And then Ethereum 2.0, the chain is already live. You know how many nodes there are? 108,000 nodes. Do you know how many transactions they validate? Zero. It's not even uh, merged yet. So it doesn't do anything, a lot of waste. And if we would put that into scaling blockchain, then that's fantastic. And I think that's where NIR comes in. It's a well-balanced approach between scalability and decentralization. So while NIR got adopted, we increased the number of nodes from 60 to 100. The next step will be three to 400, as well as increased scalability by that. And that have never reached the limits. There's a one second block time. It's really fast. And the, it, you pay less than a cent per transaction. And so we have optimal scaling. 
And I think, yes, and the, the point you make is, is very clearly um, a near foundation point, but Solana would make similar arguments, Polygon would make similar arguments, and the folks on building Optimism or, or ZK Sync would make similar arguments with nuance, um, with differences and, and pros and cons and trade-offs. And I think we we recognize that those are, are all different. And I'm aware that Near and I think Polygon and a few others are also carbon negative. And so where the environmental concerns are there, there are projects out there really, really trying to address that. Um, Maurizio, as you zoom out of all of these like scaling approaches, I want to reflect on something Kai said, which is the six different ways on 35 different exchanges with 15 different wallets to just move value. I thought we we're building the internet of value what's going on here so i think the double diamond is happening here like we diverge a bunch and then we converge a bunch and we diverge again and then we'll find a solution i think that's uh, exactly where we're we're now in the industry and i think i can kind of echo what yesin uh said about you know there's this uh, huge waste and i think that's more on an attempt to find the kind of the sweet spot of this and i I think we've spoke about this, you and I, Simon, a few times. There's not going to be a like winner takes all. I think there we'll, we'll find a balance of not 400 different blockchains, but maybe 10 blockchains that will then cater to specific use cases. So if you're not using Bitcoin to process payments, do we need it to scale if it's just a store of value? Maybe not. If Ethereum is the internet computer of everything that gets processed, well, then it needs to scale. And then we'll find ways for it to scale gradually, be it with sharding, be it with layer twos. And there will be other layer ones for which the value proposition is more around sustainability and scalability altogether. Right now, what we're seeing in the exchanges, like six options to withdraw USDC, is a byproduct of where we are in terms of the timeline of the history. So I I, th- I want to take a step back for a minute and just like for our audience help unpack like why is scalability a problem? Why why are we facing this problem in the first place? And to me, it's kind of starting with this notion of like blockchains sell block space. That's what they do. They're in the business of selling block space. And today there is an enormous amount of demand for block space, particularly on blockchains like Ethereum. That Ethereum and these blockchains have proved to be so useful that so many people across the world want to use these global computers and there is a finite amount of space that those transactions can go into that that creates this fee market. And so there are transaction fees and competition of people all over the world that want to use a finite resource. And so that's the challenge is that, you know, this this is there's so much demand that the fees are high. But the question is if you just increase the space and say okay, let's let everyone in, then what happens? You know, how can it still be secure? How do you compensate people who are actually you know, running the computers and operating this network. And so you have to find this balance. And it's fascinating that like, you know, a lot of people approach this as like high gas fees are, you know, a bug. It's terrible. Like what's like high gas fees? I think there's another way to look at it and say, is this the network working how it's supposed to in taking this finite resource? And it's finite because you have to 
maintain decentralization. If you made it, you know, the requirements of operating a node much, much higher, then fewer people can actually operate a node. And so you want to keep the requirements low so more people can participate, but then that limits how many transactions can be processed. Then that creates a fee market for people all competing to get into those transactions. And now you have this world of a product that is high in demand that people are willing to pay a lot for, but then that squeezes out smaller transactions and you know people who aren't large trading firms that are doing complex uh, things that they're willing to spend you know hundreds of dollars in gas fees for. And so that's kind of like from my perspective like how we got here, then it's how do we solve it? And one area you solve it is you increase the requirements and you enable more block space and that's the approach that some networks are taking. And others are you say let's compartmentalize and let's move some of the execution of transactions outside of Ethereum and just batch together and settle when you need to. But from my perspective, and Simon, I'm curious if you think differently, but like most proponents of Ethereum layer twos, they don't think that the gas fees on Ethereum directly on layer one are necessarily going to be reduced. They'll just be amortized across millions of transactions. And so most people would transact on a layer two pay a small amount, combined all together, the layer two settles to Ethereum and will pay the $50 gas fee. And so it's not that the main chain is necessarily cheaper, it's you have these other alternatives that make it more accessible. It's the difference between Fedwire and a swipe, right? The the reality of a Fedwire is it can cost you 10 to $40. And if you're doing an international, it could be 40 to $100 or anywhere in that region because you are using the industrial machinery to really move value. And the same machinery you use to move a dollar can move a trillion dollars. And that is the nature of an L1 in that this is a brutal machine that is really, really quite slow but will you can have an unbelievable confidence that it will execute faithfully. And that's what people are buying. That's what people are paying for, that my transaction executed faithfully. And here is the evidence that not only did we agree it executed faithfully, you can follow the whole thing. But along comes these other set of networks in TradFi, in financial services that say, most consumers just wanna buy their groceries and walk out of the store in that instant. They don't wanna wait a long time for that to happen. So we'll put this layer over the top called the authorization network. And when somebody walks in and swipes or taps their card and does a tap to pay, what what actually happens is the merchant's bank messages through a network like Visa, the consumer's bank and says, hey, has this customer got enough money to make this transaction? And the response back is yes. Then, hey, the banks will all figure this out later. And that's kind of my metaphor for L2 scaling in many cases. It's doing a similar thing. It's sort of doing the computation of like, here's what we want to figure out. Okay, like we'll figure that out later and and, and put that down to the L1 later on. So that's my my handy metaphor for lay people. I hope it I hope it works. And speaking of handy metaphors for lay people, I need a handy metaphor for it's time for the ad break. So without a handy metaphor, I will just tell you listeners, it is time for the ad break uh, and we will be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement 
Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Fintech Insider presents After Dark Ripping Up the Rulebook, a special recording of Fintech Insider live from New York City, and we want you to join us. On Tuesday, May 24th, we'll be looking at DeFi, punk rock, embedded finance and hip hop, and breaking down how they've all disrupted their industries. Head to 11fs.com forward slash afterdark for all the info and to get your free ticket. That's at 11fs.com forward slash afterdark. See you in New York. All right, we are back and we want to talk about some of the trade-offs of all things L2 versus Alt L1 versus L1 scaling versus using the EVM and keeping your wallet in the process. Kai, what do you think the the big trade-offs of the different approaches here are? We talked about the trilemma, but there may be others as well. Yeah, so I think one of the trade-offs is if you're designing a brand new blockchain, how do you get developers and users and wallets over to building and actually using that blockchain? And this is an area where it's not just the best tech always wins. It's there is a real network effect that exists of where consumers are and where developers are currently. So maybe I'd love to start with with yes, and I'm like, from the near perspective, how do you think about where consumers and developers are currently, how do you convince them to come over and build on something new? And is there this like chicken and egg of like, you know, consumers aren't going to use it until developers are there, until wallets are there, but how do you get wallets and developers there? And there are many different choices to build on. What is this like for a, a new layer one? I think to get adoption, it's user experience. It needs to be simple to use for developers as well as for users. And then, of course, it needs to be secure and scale. If it's extremely expensive or if it breaks, it's just not interesting. People will turn away quickly. So it needs to be simple, secure and scalable. And nowadays, sustainability is a big topic. So uh, if it's green, carbon neutral, proof of stake, that's a good place to go. It attracts. Mauricio, Solana has done quite well with the NFT community, with the GameFi community. Polygon has done really well. What do you think they did in terms of getting user adoption that you've seen um, that seems to have given them a sense of momentum? And I know there are others, but those were what came to mind. Yeah, I think in terms of overall uh, user adoption, uh, I agree that UX is is like, it's seminal. Uh, And part of this is the time of response for transactions and also the cost. So NFTs are not large uh, corporate investments, although some companies I know of, right, Kai, bought uh, NFTs around. Uh, but I think the, the the overall retail consumer is more concerned about how fast can I get this NFT and how cheap can I pay transaction fees for it. Uh, and I think that worked well. Um, for Polygon, absolutely. For Solana, mixed reviews, especially when there's uh, minting processes where bots are flooding a network uh, because of the cheaper fees. So again, to go back to Kai's point, sometimes the fees are expensive for security reasons because you don't want to bottleneck the network with a bunch of swarm attacks uh, from bots minting NFTs. So I think that's a lesson to be learned. And uh, again, as as, uh, Yesen mentioned, you can't compromise security uh, for cost. So there is a balance to be achieved there. And what would the experience look like from a consumer perspective, Kai, of using, say, Solana versus Polygon versus the regular Ethereum? What does it look like to you and me? 
Yeah, so I I, th I think initially one of the challenges has been that there are separate wallets for a different layer one like Solana versus you know for a layer one like Ethereum or layer twos on Ethereum. What we're seeing is over time there are more wallets that are going multi-chain. And so if you see a wallet like Phantom that started out as a Solana wallet, they're now you know planning on adding support you know for Ethereum. And so it's not easy to do to build you know really you know great experience multi-chain wallets. It's a lot of work. But we have seen, you know, particularly the large you know, custodial wallets and exchanges, you know, they are now supporting you know, Solana, you know, Polygon, you know, Arbitrum is now supported on Crypto.com and on Binance. Uh, and so you know, as more wallets become multi-chain, then at least you, know, you don't have to use a separate wallet for Solana versus what you use for Ethereum. But as I mentioned, there is still the notion of you have to choose which network you want to use that wallet with. And some wallets make it more difficult than others to kind of go in a dropdown or a setting and kind of switch from one wet network to another. We're seeing some applications that actually recognize if you go to the application with MetaMask in your browser and you're on Arbitrum and you should be on Avalanche, it will recognize that and prompt you to switch. And so I think the hope is can we get to the point that the consumer doesn't have to know and think about it? How long will that take? And will that be with six different networks that these wallets are you know, switching behind the scenes uh, without the consumer knowing? Will that be two? Will it be a dozen? Uh, and I think that's where this is still a complete battle you know, for developer adoption and applications you know, before we determine kind of which which networks emerge as the, the winners there. It's super challenging, isn't it? Yes, and, and still so many things to uh, kind of uh, look at uh, in terms of developer adoption. I know um, one of the things that Neil looks at is different language support um, versus you know Solidity, which is very, very popular. How have you seen organizations like NIR look at ecosystem funds? What is an ecosystem fund? Um, and what are people doing around evangelism and events? Because there's quite a vibrant community in a, in a lot of these projects. We do have a grants program. We have an educations program, right? Um, we are supporting people that would like to adopt the NIR protocol, build on it with, um, with, with resources, grants, um, education, and uh, giving them resources to tech documentation, etc. Building the community, it's uh, doing hackathons, it's, uh, it's Nearcon is coming up this fall, join it. Uh, we have, uh, we are going more regional, so we are having uh, local hubs, which we are building up. What do you think about geographic adoption and regional adoption of these networks? Like, do you see a world where there might be a layer two or an alt layer one that gets a foothold and gets a lot of adoption in a certain market? You know, I think about something like Polygon, where you know at least one of the founders is from India. You know, they have a presence in India. And it seems like there's like an ecosystem developing, and so is this going to be you know a handful of networks that have you know adoption globally, or could we be in a world where there are multiple different layer twos or alt layer ones, and depending upon which region, based upon those on the ground developer ecosystems you see different adoption you know, in different markets. It's very interesting you bring this up because um, I'm gonna dox myself. I was, I am a former 
enterprise blockchain practitioner. So yeah, bear with me for that. Uh, it's a stain in my past. But you know, having said that, yes, there was a concept within enterprise blockchains where you you would have um, like a, a global network that would then bridge uh, local or regional networks uh, for not only for security but also for um, scalability. In terms of public blockchains, I I have a harder uh, time sort of coming to that same place because by nature these are global digital 24 7 data transaction infrastructures so thinking that yes there might be like for the ease of development or maybe the documentation of that particular protocol is better written in a particular language people will pick up a little bit more but if the pandemic showed us anything is that you know digital goes anywhere so i i really have a hard time kind of trying to fit that concept of uh, regionalization on the public blockchains because even the organizations are now becoming decentralized with all the DAOs coming about, right? So I don't think that the infrastructure is going to follow because if I'm in Singapore and I want to access any other protocols that I work with, you know, I have a hard time thinking that that's going to be unavailable in uh, Southeast Asia. So yeah, maybe for enterprises, but not for public blockchains. Kai, um, we sort of briefly covered L2s early on, um, but there are some challenges with various approaches around, you know, we talked a lot about composability and being permissionless, but though with some of the L2s, some of your composability and permissionless might go away. You know, what are your thoughts uh, from a developer perspective as you look at this? Uh, we saw, for instance, Stripe has, ado- has started to work with Polygon do you think that the EVM will play a crucial role, the Ethereum virtual machine, more and more into the future? Yeah, I, I think this question of, of composability is super critical. And it's one of the things that makes you know, blockchains so interesting and of really spurs the innovation that's happening. It seems like the state of layer twos today, you know, there are a number of approaches, particularly things like you know, ZK rollups that are not really generalizable yet. Like you can have these very application specific use cases. If you wanna do you know, just a payments focused rollup or you know, one specific exchange you know, on a rollup, uh, but having the ability for any developer to plug in and, and write code and take a feature from one application um, and be able to, to connect it to another, that's what has really driven Ethereum and has really driven you know, DeFi and NFTs. And it feels like the challenge is when you have the activity split out across multiple layer twos, you can't instantly connect between them. You have to bridge from one layer two to another, and that takes an action for the consumer, can take time, isn't necessarily easy. Sometimes you know there have been security issues in doing that, and it doesn't happen natively within an application or a smart contract. So from my understanding, there aren't you know, decentralized exchanges that at the same time are pulling from liquidity pools on multiple different layer twos to execute one transaction. It's kind of you have a decentralized exchange with one instance on one layer two and a separate instance on another layer two, and the liquidity is, is kept in, in each one. Uh, and so I think this is where you, know, you could argue that there likely could be some consolidation to have you know, one or a handful of these get 
you know, more uh, market share because of that desire to have the same level of composability that Ethereum has be able to exist on a faster, cheaper layer two. We don't know which one that's going to be yet. It sounds like with ZK rollups, there's still some ways to go to make it more generalizable. And you could also potentially see a world in which an L2 exists for enterprises or consortia that is quite specific to their type of transaction. This is certainly something that the the bankless guys are, are talking about. Um, shout out, shout out to uh, to Ryan and David over there. Uh, yes, and um, before we close out, um, there are some other trade offs as well and some other design choices. Uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of uh, sharding. Do you want to just briefly unpack what that is? Sure. I mean, sharding is splitting up the work. Uh, among validators so that the validators or miners don't all validate every single transaction. So they, they split up work that um, the part of the validator still step the, uh, this part of the, the transactions and the other validators and other part. And by that, you have a higher throughput, right? And um, you achieve scalability by that. And a number of projects are trying to um, sort of pursue sharding. We know that, again, going back to our sandwich of options, uh, we have Ethereum L1 itself may may start to look at sharding its underlying network. You also have the alternatives that, that do it by default today, and some L2s that potentially could could even start to, to go there. Um, Kai, you want us to jump in? Yeah, can I just emphasize, like, the biggest takeaway for anyone listening, just like scratching their heads of like, there's so many different things happening here. To me, the, the takeaway is that it's no longer a question of can blockchain scale? It's you know when and how and with what trade-offs and for what use cases. And that's what makes this so much more complex. It was easy when you just said, oh, here's what the layer one does and you know, that's what it's always going to be. Now we are seeing, and, and really, I think these are the types of, of technology challenges that can't be solved in a very top-down one entity designing this. Instead, this is a bottoms-up ecosystem of some of the smartest developers, cryptographers, new types of math that are being incentivized and being developed and commercialized that are all coming together with competing approaches to try and figure out what are the best ways to do this and for which applications. And no one knows like how this is going to play out and like who's going to win. But I think at this point, it's very hard to sit there and say, none of this is going to work. <laughs> it's all going to fail. We're all going to be stuck and not being able to transact you know, cheaply on a blockchain. And so it's just trying to understand those trade-offs and, and the direction it's heading versus I don't think most of our listeners need to you know, really pick the right one you know, if you're in this space or if you're following it closely. It, it was interesting listening to Dan Moorhead from Pantera uh, on the Bankless podcast. Um, he was talking about every time he goes to speak to LPs and investors, they ask him, what one chain is going to win? What's the one that is definitely going to win? And the reality is, why, when you can just buy tokens in all of them, do you care? Um, what we really love is an ecosystem of lots of different options People like Nier, Polygon, Solana, Avalanche, uh, Terra, the likes of uh, Poly uh, Optimism, uh, ZK, and everybody I didn't mention, Arbitrum, all of those names, there's lots of them. But isn't it exciting to live in a time where people are reasonably well-funded 
uh, expert mode trying to make all of this happen. And we get to, to sit and try and figure it all out with you listeners. Um, so that does wrap up this today's discussion. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Let's start with Yesin. Yeah, head to near.org and read about the near protocol. You'll find me on the page as well. And I'm very excited about anyone visiting and considering to build on top of Near. Amazing. Maurizio? Uh, you can find me at 11fs.com and at Twitter at BlockDropSpot. I'm happy to interact with you online. Thanks for having me. Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. You'll find me at SYTaylor or at Simon11FS.com. Thank you for listening. Do go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Remember to recommend this pod to everybody you know that cares about learning in this space. Um, and if you can't, wait till the next episode. There's a whole back catalog right there. Just jump right in. Snack, dine, whatever size of meal you want, there's, there's a back catalog for you. Uh, and if you love any of that stuff, leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps other people find it too. So, you know, please do it. Consider it. Uh, stay rare, stay weird, and LFG people. Bye for now.